is your strength. A prayer by Dr. Yolanda Pierce. Let us not rush to the language of healing before understanding the fullness of the injury and the depth of the wound. Let us not rush to offer a band-aid when the gaping wound requires surgery and complete reconstruction. Let us not offer false equivalencies, thereby diminishing the particular pain being felt in a particular circumstance in a particular historical moment. Let us not speak of reconciliation without speaking of reparations and restoration, or how we can repair the breach and how we can restore the loss. Let us not rush past the loss of this mother's child, this father's child, someone's beloved son. Let us not value property over people. Let us not protect material objects while human lives hang in the balance. Let us not value a false peace over a righteous justice. Let us not be afraid to sit with the ugliness, the messiness, and the pain that is life and community together. Let us not offer cliches to the grieving, those whose hearts are being torn asunder. Instead, let us mourn black and brown men and women, those killed extrajudiciously every 28 hours. Let us lament the loss of a young man dead at the hands of a police officer. Let us weep at a criminal justice system which is neither blind nor just. Let us call for the mourning men and the wailing women, those willing to rend their garments of privilege and ease and sit in the ashes of this nation's original sin. Let us be silent when we don't know what to say. Let us be humble and listen to the pain, rage, and grief pouring from the lips of our neighbors and friends. Let us decrease so that our brothers and sisters who live on the underside of history may increase. Let us pray with our eyes open and our feet firmly planted on the ground. Let us listen to the shattering glass, for it is the language of the unheard. God, in your mercy, show me my own complicity and injustice. Convict me for my indifference. Forgive me when I have remained silent. Equip me with a zeal for righteousness. Never let me grow accustomed or acclimated to the opposite. There are times when doubt overwhelms belief. And when we see a significant amount, any amount of violence against Asian Americans and yet another reoccurrence of police brutality and murder of black men's at the hands of racial profiling, we must continue to look at our structures and audit them. 
I feel like a broken record sometimes, but we must re-engage. We must continue. We must remember. Dante Wright was a father, a partner, a son, filled with hopes and dreams and visions of what could be. He, along with so many others, should be with us this Sunday, but they are not. And I acknowledge that I come into this week having a hard time coming up with new words to say. But I will fall back on something that I've referenced a few times and want to formally introduce where I've learned these from. I've referenced these transformational values, which come from Crossroads anti-racism training, um, an organization that spent 18 months auditing the previous church that I was a resident at in Chicago. Over these 18 months, they evaluated leadership, church structure, outreach, discipleship, worship, you name it, and gave scores in each of these categories to mark how well the church was doing in terms of actively pursuing anti-racism. I hope to walk through this week's passage holding both the doubt that things can be drastically different in our world and the hope that it will. And I'll post some of these like worksheets from Crossroads onto the sermon page and we'll continue to search for resources to engage with because obviously the work is so far from being done. But with that, I invite you into Luke this week, into a story of both doubt, wonder, and belief. Luke 24, 36b through 48. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you frightened? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witness of these things. The word of the Lord. Now, there are four transformational values, and each one is pushing back against a white institutional value. So in this kind of dichotomy, more or less, um, the first is both and, which pushes back against either or. 
Then the second is community, which pushes back against isolation. The third, abundance, which pushes back against scarcity. And finally, transparency, that pushes back against secrecy. Now, this first one we use quite a bit, and the entire phrase that Crossroad uses is both and thinking with a bias towards action. It pushes back against the paralysis that can often prevent action, it pushes back against that either or thinking, the forcing out of diversity, and the forcing of binaries. And it could very well be called all and. I don't think it's meant to be stopped with just two options. And the disciples here are experiencing both doubt and joy, grief and wonder. Such a more real response to Jesus suddenly appearing than the disciples just getting on their knees and worshiping like they do in Mark or some of the other Gospels. They're continuing to live, think, and understand in the usual human categories. They've separated spirit and matter, divinity and humanity, heaven and earth. And whenever we make these separations ourselves, we close our minds, deny ourselves the resurrected life for which Christ has entered, and we lose our sense and ability to recognize holiness in this world, in one another, and in ourselves. And of course, Jesus leans into simple action when the disciples appear to be paralyzed by fear and wonder they were experiencing and asked, do you have anything to eat? Bread, fish, food in general has often been a symbol of new life and transformation. Yeast transformed into bread. We take communion every week. All of these things are related and connected that move us into a space of transformation. The resurrected life of Christ has been revealed through the created, but it is not how we're bound by the things that have bound life before. Instead, this resurrected body and life of Christ unite the visible and invisible matter and spirit humanity, and divinity. When Christ is resurrected, he no longer is the same or means the same to us as he did prior. He is fundamentally changed in this new life. It doesn't merely bring back something that was before. It was a transformation. And similarly, we don't seek to simply bring back some sort of order that has honestly never existed in our society in an equitable way, but is moving towards something that's never existed before. And of course, we can't do that in isolation. Even though some of the other Gospels emphasize how quickly the disciples are to jump and praise Jesus after turning to them, I don't think that the disciples would have immediately jumped out of their grief either. These disciples and their companions probably would have been gathered together, sharing about their experience, perhaps offering each other space to process the trauma they had witnessed. If we're talking about a physical death on a cross, it would have been an extremely traumatic thing to witness, even if they weren't the one in that moment being put to death. They need each other to process in this space. 
And definitely one cannot rush the healing. It doesn't just quickly switch when Jesus returns. Both of those things continue to be true. And being in community not only pushes back against isolation, but it pushes back against competition. From what I can tell, Luke includes here not only the disciples, but also their companions in this arrival of Christ. In this moment, it wasn't a matter of secrecy or competition. And we've mentioned over the past few weeks different initiatives that our church family are involved in supporting, whether that's Jason's involvement with Covenant House, Josh's involvement with his community, or other initiatives that y'all are a part of. And we love the enthusiasm that several have voiced about starting new church initiatives, and we also acknowledge that this work is already being done by amazing organizations that we feel privileged to support. When we jump in with a group that's already doing these amazing things, not only do we help add to their number and potentially help expand the impact that can happen um, that we as a tinier group may not be able to do, we also make sure that the right voices are being centered rather than always mine or Ryan's. And I acknowledge that both Ryan and I share some of the same experience as white people existing in America. And while I'm absolutely here for supporting, showing up, donating, etc., to the folks already doing the work, I also want to make sure that we focus on the right folks being centered. By supporting neighborhood initiatives, the community of Mission Hills rather than putting the emphasis on any one individual, gets to multiply the potential impact by existing in true, larger community rather than isolation. In this, we find that there is abundance of resource as we share and come together. And the full value of abundance that Crossroads lists out is an abundant worldview that uses resources responsibly. And this is key. It is doing two things. It is acknowledging that we can see that we don't have to act out of scarcity, um, but we are also doing our part to use resources responsibly and to make sure that they are not just drained for the sake of it. But by living into a value of abundance, it pushes back against the automatic no. And probably in many of the disciples' minds, as they didn't understand what Jesus would have meant by saying he would be raised on the third day, they probably had an automatic no in response to the question, is resurrection possible? Resurrection provides an abundance of hope. And I think this brings us back to the conversation we had on Easter that if we believe resurrection is possible, what else changes in our worldview? Even though we are met every day with images of violence, betrayal, does resurrection make it possible to hold hope that one day our world might be different? I can say for a fact that the world we exist in right now is not the ideal. It is not the full kingdom. But maybe... Maybe, by living into abundant worldview, it pushes back against the automatic no that the world can't change. It remains hopeful that we can make shifts and changes that use resources wisely 
and also address the needs that are here. But by being able to do that, we have to be transparent about what the needs are. And even once we are transparent with what the needs are, there needs to be transparent decision-making that actually helps funnel responding to those needs. The full value that Crossroads lists is that transparent communication and decision-making that guards personal integrity. This clearly pushes back against many of the systems in place that seek to push to the side the mistakes, the overt racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, that leave so many wounded and killed. Now Jesus has been transparent about who he is and the reality of resurrection. He also is clear, at least in my book, on some of the expectations. Love thy neighbor. Of course, the definitions of love, of your, and of neighbor have changed over the centuries, so there is an active participation necessary to seek and find what that looks like today. But transparency pushes back against triangulation, dishonesty, only sharing things on a need-to-know basis, and hierarchy of power. Without transparency, without true justice, without a place and understanding of abundance, without community, and without a both-and thinking with a bias towards action, we struggle to be able to move forward. And these are just, as always, a starting point. But you know what I love about this passage that's similar to our Easter reading is that there's no bow on the end of this passage to say that the disciples gave up their doubt in this moment. They experience a both and of holding both joy and disbelief and probably grief in their hearts at the same time. There's no neat resolve. Jesus shows them his wounds that happened at the hands of empire, but they don't cry out in a chorus of belief. Instead, we get one of few of my favorite verses that while in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering, Jesus said to them, have you anything here to eat? Jesus's hunger or maybe just ability to enjoy, further demonstrate his physicality while also acknowledging the disciples still wondering. Karl Barth, a Swiss theologian, points out that miracle stories and resurrection stories, most of all, are designed to astonish. And astonishment, after all, is a blend of belief and disbelief. Accordingly, he contends that Christianity should neither merely believe miracle stories, for that would mean we aren't truly astonished by them, nor merely disbelieve them. Rather, these stories should continue to leave us taken aback. It gives us pause to once again see how a resurrection moment like this one is integrated into our full understanding 
and question of faith. Luke does a lot to insist on the physical reality of the resurrected. It's not only about the what next, but it's the what's right now. Not only a new heavens, but also a new earth. And all of these values push us to be witnesses of change as the disciples are witness of a new reality. Instead of white institutional values that have allowed segregation, violence, racism, and death to be main storylines present in our society, these transformational values push us to embrace a resurrection that is not just bringing back the old, but embraces the hope of something new. Sometimes our grief, whether it is in moments in response to what has happened in our country this week, this month, this year, this decade, our history, or it is space in your own life grief that is alive and unfortunately well um, in all of the things that we have come into contact with and faced over this pandemic. And as we continue to seek and find spaces to allow ourselves the process to grieve, to move through it, my hope is that we can continue to join together to look outward and see where we might have the smallest glimmer of hope in an action that might push us into something new. And as we continue over the next few weeks, whether it's in our book study or as we move through post-Easter season, I invite you to consider what it would mean to truly integrate these values into a daily practice or dream big about how they could disrupt the systems that have obviously not changed and that need to be broken down. Sometimes we have to completely unravel to completely bring a sledgehammer to the foundation before we can rebuild. My hope is that in introducing these values more formally, we'll have a space to continue the conversation as always. Um, and also just provide one another some space to breathe, to grieve, and to be present to both our doubt and our belief. We love you all so much. If you need anything this week or next or any day in the future, you know where to find us. We're here. We're together. We're not going anywhere. Love y'all. Have a good week.